If you would, please at this time take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 28, the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. For the past several months, we have been looking at the teaching of our Lord Jesus following His resurrection and prior to His ascension into glory. We've entitled the series, The Ongoing Work of the Resurrected Savior. Next year, it'll be The Ongoing Work of the Ascended Savior, as we see what He does even now for His church while He is in glory. But this year, we have been looking at what He taught, what He said, what He did after He was raised from the dead, but yet before He ascended back into heaven. And in many ways, it's a brief section of the Gospels. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, where we are here, this is the only section, the only passage that even deals with Him as resurrected and speaking to His disciples. Now, prior to this, we had looked first at His appearance on the shore, the Sea of Tiberias, where He restored his servant Peter, you recall that, that comes from the Gospel of John. And then we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we saw his appearances as reported by the Apostle Paul, where he said that he appeared to so many, even 500, more than 500 at one time. But mostly for the past many weeks, we have been looking at his appearance on the mount given to us here in the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 28. We saw first from this text what we call the all-powerful head of all things. As he says in verse 18, He came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the resurrected living God, And all authority and all power have been given to Him. He is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is only a shame that in so many churches today, He is treated as so far less than King. They teach that perhaps He'll reign one day in the far off distant future. Not that He is reigning now, today, as King and Lord. And we looked at that for some time. We also saw from this the instructions that He gives to an evangelizing church. As He says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples. We saw that the command in the text is not, Go, the go is connected to what comes before it. Go, therefore, in light of the fact that I am the sovereign God, the King. Go, as you're going, and the command is make disciples. And we spent several weeks looking at what it means to make a disciple and what it means to be a disciple. We saw from the teaching of our Lord Jesus that you are set free by truth. And so it is bring truth. That is what makes disciples. 
and that he also said that he will prove to be my disciple if you keep my word. So it is his word that sets men free and makes them true followers. And it is his word that teaches them, guides them, and that they will adhere to as they are true disciples of Jesus. And then we went on to see from the, this particular verse, his instructions to a baptizing church. Make disciples, baptize them. And I am conscious of the fact that I have a front row of Presbyterians with us. And I have to let you know that there was a time in my life, in the life of my family, when we attended Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church for months. Because I would rather go to a good Presbyterian church than a bad Baptist one. And one of my favorite authors and speakers, and whose church I have attended many times, is R.C. Sproul. And he is a Presbyterian. And I love the man. I've met him many times and have actually been involved in a service with him in one occasion. He's a good man. But in certain instances, good men may differ. And we do not shed blood over Presbyterians baptizing children. But I will teach you why we are Baptists, and that's what we did. We looked at this text, we saw what it meant to be a disciple, and we saw that the teaching we believe of our Lord from this text is that you baptize believers. And that is why, indeed, we are Baptists. But today we take up the next area of instruction that Jesus gives us from this appearance on the mount. And it is whether you are Presbyterian and baptize a baby or whether you are a Baptist and baptize a believer, you do so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I actually intended to begin a rather lengthy series on the Trinity today. But I saw in the text something that I felt needed to be addressed prior to that, So that series will begin next Sunday. Because what Jesus says to the disciples is, baptizing them in the name. And I did not want to skip that. He speaks of being baptized in the name of. Into the name of is also how it may be rendered. And so what I want to do today is to look at our Lord's teaching here regarding a family church. A family church. The main thrust, yes, will be the Trinity. But part of what he is saying is, we take on the name of our God. When you are saved, and when you are baptized, you become associated with and take on the very name of the God you worship. And so I want to begin by looking at the family name, being baptized into the family name. Now again, I remind you, we baptize one who is a disciple. 
A disciple is one who hears the truth, is saved by the truth, and keeps the truth. And then we put this together, that this saved man and this same woman then becomes part of the family of God. Now we've been going through this teaching somewhat in our Wednesday evening prayer services. It is the whole doctrine of adoption given in the scriptures. And I cannot take but a few minutes today, but I want to touch on it briefly. I ask you to turn with me, if you would, please, in your Bibles to that passage we read a few moments ago from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Once we are saved, we are not left as orphans. Rather, we become adopted children of God. Adopted into His family. Now, I read the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 8, just to make sure we know who is being spoken of. And I pointed out to you again in verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not talking to those who are lost. We are not talking about those who are lost, who have no concern for the gospel, who have no concern for God, who have no concern for Christ. We are talking about those who are in Christ Jesus, and there is now no condemnation for them. This is speaking of a saved man, a saved woman, and a saved boy or girl. And he goes on to say, if you would look down in verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. There is a contrast being given here by the Apostle Paul. You have on the one hand, those who set their minds on the things of the flesh the fleshy desires, the material desires of the things of the world. On the other hand, you have those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the truth of God. There are those who set their minds on the flesh and those who set their minds on the Spirit. He goes on to say, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. A contrast again. One who is death and one who is life and peace. Now notice he says, who has set their mind on the flesh. I know every single one of you here today has to have a struggle with sin and flesh. We all do. But the Christian man... It is not his set desire. It is not what he strives after. It's not the thing that he wants so much. It's not what he drags behind him, as Isaiah 5 said, as with cart ropes, baggages full of sin. That's not what we want. Our desire and our striving is towards the things of the Spirit. The one who has no concern for the Spirit the one who has no concern for the things of God, the one who has no concern for Jesus Christ, his mind is set on the flesh, and that's death. 
ours is life and peace. What a contrast. You know, the world today is going crazy trying to find some kind of peace. And yet they're looking in the absolute wrong places. Worldly, they're looking at the world. They're looking at the flesh instead of looking at the things of God. Isn't it amazing that in our day, everything is acceptable. Everything is right. We have to tolerate all kinds of views except Christ and that which will bring life and peace. And here the Apostle Paul tells us, the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not, it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed The Spirit of God dwells in you. That's a saved man. That's a saved woman. Now, why am I reading that? If you would, look over to verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, and that would be the Christian, these are sons of God. So a saved man, a saved woman, a saved boy or girl who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh, a saved man, a saved woman, they are sons and daughters of God. Those who are saved are the children of God. Verse 15, For we do have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When you receive the Spirit of God in your heart and in your life, It changes your thinking. It changes your perspective. It changes your attitude towards God. It changes your relationship towards God. And you are constrained, even as the text says, to cry out, Abba, Father. My God, my Father. You cry out from your heart because He has changed your heart from stone and made it a heart of flesh. Living to God. And you are able to call him Abba, Father. Now I know that there is much debate over this term Abba. And uh, many have said, and perhaps I myself have even said upon occasion, that it is like saying Daddy. But actually the word is the Aramaic for Father. So it's Father Father, it is a close, familiar, personal term that if you think about it, only Christians have the right to say and to call God. Only Christians, from a changed heart, a heart set on the things of the Spirit, will now say, Abba, 
Father. Now, don't get me wrong, anybody can say it, but only Christians will know what it means. To know that He has saved me from my sin. To know that He has given me life and peace constrains me to cry out, Abba, Father, thank you for all that you have done on my behalf. It is a wonderful term of close familiarity. And it is not at all unlike what your children might say to you as a dad. I know that when I get a phone call and on the other end it says, Dad, I know immediately who it is. If it's a uh, person on the other line, of course I know their voices, I and I have caller ID too, but uh, when you hear the word dad, it sounds so good. Not that it doesn't sound good when the phone rings and he goes, pastor. But I mean, it's your kids. It's a term of familiarity and closeness. And that is what the apostle is speaking of. And we know that he is speaking of this from personal experience. Paul a persecutor of the church. Paul, one who tried to kill Christians, arrested on the Damascus Road, saved by the grace of God, knew exactly what it meant to now be able to call God Father, Father. Now even beyond that, verse 17 And if children, well, let's say the Spirit Himself, this verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs also of God, and fellow heirs are with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. But we're heirs, children. Adopted by our Father and heirs of all that is His. All the gold, all the silver that men struggle for, fight for, work for, care about today. God owns it all and you are His heir. The glory of God that awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth. Because we are His children. Now I began with the contrast. Those who are saved in Christ. Those who have their minds set on the Spirit, not on the flesh. Not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone is an heir of God. Not everyone can call God Abba, Father. But you can, if you are saved by His grace. What a privilege. What a remarkable privilege to be able to call God Abba, Father. Even to call God Father. Do you realize that there's no other religion like that? You think the Muslims call Allah Father? There's no love and familiarity. There's no personal relationship. You, as a Christian, have the privilege of being a child of God. This is also made clear, if you would look quickly, in 1 John 
chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Imagine that. Children of God. And such we are. We are what we could say full-fledged family members. Full-fledged part of the family of God. That's what we are. I like what he goes on to say. That we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us. Because it does not know him. Again the contrast. You think the world understands why we come to church and worship the God who saved us by His grace through the sacrificial death of His Son, Jesus Christ? They don't understand why you're here. They don't understand why you're not out on the road, on your way to the beach, on your way to the mall. They don't understand why you come to church, Sunday school, prayer meeting. They don't get it. Because they don't understand God as their Father. They don't know God as their father. But you do. And you have that joy. You have that excitement. You have that peace, that life that constrains you to call out, Abba, Father! My God, my Father. You know, even the, what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer begins with, Our Father. In all my life, I have heard people repeat that prayer. And unfortunately, so many of them don't have the right to even say our Father. But you, as a child of God, do. And that is, according to John, what we are. It is a privilege. It is an honor. It is a responsibility to be a child of God. And that's what we're going to see a little bit more as we continue on. I, I, I don't know that we can appreciate all that it means to, to know God in this way. As I said, no other religion does this except Christianity, that we know God as our Father. And yet, there's more to this. If you would, please turn back to our passage in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And part, at least, of what Jesus is here telling His disciples in verse 19 is that, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about this. As would be the case, usually, with one who is adopted, they take the name of the family that adopts them. You are now saved, a disciple, a follower of Christ, a follower of His truth, a follower of His Word. You are now part of the kingdom of God, and as such, a child of God, a family member of God. And so you, as such, when you are baptized, are baptized into His name. 
you take his name. You take the name of God upon you. You become associated with God's name. Associated with God by name. We become known as Christians. Christians. And sometimes that's used in a derogatory sense. But for those of us who know the Christ, the Son of God, we are proud to be known as such, a Christian. Once again, I say that there are many people who call themselves Christians who are not biblically Christians, who are not, according to the biblical definition, saved and born again and truly living for Christ. They're Christians perhaps in name only. There's multitudes of them. But for those of us who understand what it means to be saved, a disciple, we are baptized into the name and we become known by our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. We become known as Christians. It is much like when a couple marries and the wife takes the husband's name. That used to be commonplace. I think it's actually gone back to that. There was a period of time when it was hyphenated or the woman didn't take the man's name. But it does seem now that that most people do still go back to the wife takes the husband's name. She becomes part of the family. That's all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. The woman shall leave her family and shall cleave to her husband and the two shall become one flesh, one family. And so the wife takes on the name of the husband, becomes associated with his name. My wife was excited and glad to take on my name, although I don't know why it's pretty hard to pronounce. But, peop- but she loves my- having the name Hildebrandt. Kim's name is now Kim Hildebrandt. And I still find it strange to go into their house to see the name on the wall. Oh, yeah, that's their name too, yeah. They take on the association with the name because they're part of the family. Now, if you think about it in your own household, and uh, I, I think there are still people who write letters. I still get at least bills in the mail, and they have on them my name. Mr. Hildebrandt. And sometimes when I get cards from my daughter or my sons or whatever, it will be addressed Mr. and Mrs. Hildebrandt. But that's because that's our name. That's our family name. Our kids are known by our name. Their kids are known by their name. They're known by this family name because it's your household And that's what it is when you're baptized into Christ. You are known by His name. You become part of the name of God. Christian. You become a Christian. Well, you don't become a Christian when you're baptized. But you are baptized into the name because you have become one of His children. 
and you take the name Christian. So our Lord Jesus is saying to the disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Now let's bring this to the church a little bit. And we did talk about this recently. In some churches, people come and go. They pass nameless faces on the way. They see people and they rush out the back door. They see people, oh yeah, there's, uh, there's people down the front there. I don't have any idea who they are. They don't know them. They don't care. They're not associated with them. And I say to you, as I said just last week, I believe that that's just not biblical. When you are saved by the grace of God, you become a son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God. You become a member of the family. As such, other members of the family are brothers and sisters. We all share the same name. And how wrong it would be if we were just passing aimlessly by, not knowing one another, not caring about one another. That is not how it's supposed to be. We're a family. And I strongly pray to the end, preach to the end, hope to the end that that will be the case in our church. And it has been for our existence. We're family. We know one another. We care about one another. When one member rejoices, the body rejoices. How can you do that if you don't even know what's going on in the lives of your family? When one member of the family is in pain and sorrow, the rest of the church is in pain and sorrow for that one and cares for that one. The church is the family of God, the body of Christ. Blocks being built up as a spiritual household of God. I care about you as my family. Don't tell my maternal family I care about you more. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that. But uh, they don't know God. They don't care about God. They don't care about the things of the Bible. You do. You're my family. We are indeed the family of God. Rightful sons and daughters. Now, even though we primarily use the name Christ, the Son of our God, Christians, I want to make sure that we understand that this text shows that we are not, if I can say it reverently, only Christians, we're not only united to Christ, we are united to the triune God. As he says, you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now I said that we're going to get into 
the Trinity next Lord's Day, but I wanted to at least make sure we understand today as we consider this, that our salvation is the work of the triune God. It is not only the work of Christ, it is not only the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is not only the work of the Father. It is the work of the triune God together, working together for your redemption. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Here we have what is arguably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. And it is my understanding that football season has begun, so you'll probably see somebody holding up a sign if you ever watch that. But I mean, you know, they're always holding up this verse, John 3.16. And this is what it says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What we find here is the work of the Son, but what we also find here is the work of the Father. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He sent His Son. God sent His only begotten Son. And we know what that means. We know that we, we are talking about the Incarnation Jesus the Son, leaving heaven, leaving glory, coming to earth, born in Bethlehem to a virgin, laid in the manger, in the house where they were. We know what that's all about. The birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. God sent Him. He didn't just come. He didn't even come on His own initiative. God sent him. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, Testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father sent Jesus to do the works that he was to do. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But the Father has sent him to do the work that he came to do. And what was the work that he came to do? Well, that's back in John 3.16. He gave himself a sacrifice. He gave himself a sacrifice that whoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. He came, sent by the Father, to do the will of the Father. He was sent by God to do the will of God. Now look at verse 30, if you're still in John 5. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. 
doesn't do it even on his own initiative. So here's the point. God sent Jesus. If we could take the time, we could even look at Ephesians chapter 1, where it speaks of the fact that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So God chose a people from before the foundation of the world. And this same God that chose these people then sent His Son to die for those people. He chose the people and sent His Son to die for those people. That's the Father. And now what about the Son? Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son. That, of course, is Jesus, the Messiah, the one called the Christ, the one who we are commonly associated with with, as we are called Christians. What about the Son? Of course we understand and we know, even as we celebrated last Lord's Day, as we took the bread and the cup and remembered the death, the the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. This is what He did. Jesus, sent by the Father, came and gave His life on the cross. His body broken, beaten, scourged. Can you imagine how bloody and unrecognizable his face must have been for the punches and the beating. His back ripped like raw meat with the scourging that took place. The blood pouring from his head from the crown of thorns as he walked through the streets. What a sight! And this was the Son of God. And why did He do that? Why did He then get nailed to the cross and hang there before men? Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Why? To pay our sin debt. And don't ever lose sight of the fact that the Father who sent the Son, who had the Son go to the cross, was then pouring out the wrath that I deserve on His Son. Actively pouring out the wrath, His wrath, that I should pay in hell on His Son while He was on the cross. So the cross was not only Jesus. The cross was the Father and the Son. As the Father poured out His wrath on His only begotten Son for me. For you, if you are saved by His grace. The Father and the Son together involved in your salvation. And then of course we have the work of the Holy Spirit. If you would please look at the book of Acts in chapter 2. Following the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, here in Acts chapter 2, Peter begins to speak. 
Peter preaches a sermon, uses the Scriptures, uses the truth about Jesus and who He was and what He did and what happens as He preaches. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Who did that piercing? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Taking the truth of God's word and piercing men's hearts. We read in the Gospel of John again that he was sent by Christ, sent by the Father, to convict the world of sin and judgment and righteousness. And when the word is preached, the Spirit convinces men of sin, of judgment, and of the beauty of Christ opens their hearts and draws them to Himself. Draws them to Christ. Draws them to the Father. So yes, we are called Christians. But a true Christian is baptized into the name of the Father, the Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It would sound a little awkward, I guess, if we were called the triunes, but we are Christians, but we believe in the triune God. Now this passage, this text back in Matthew 28, when he says you are to baptize in the name, also carries a, a strong bit of authority, that when we baptize one It is done so on the authority of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. There's authority there. And so we're baptized because of the work of the triune God and we then take His name upon us. All of this is the work of God to save you to save me. And we'll be looking more at what this whole matter of the Trinity means beginning next week as we see this biblical doctrine that has kind of been uh, put on the back burner recently. And as it's been twisted and maligned and actually denied by some and many who call themselves evangelicals today deny the actual biblical teaching of the Trinity. And we'll take that up next Lord's Day. But today, what a privilege is ours to be known by the name of our Savior. It's our family name, Christ. We are Christians, members of the household of Christ. Thank God. But what about you? Is Christ your family name? Are you truly a Christian? Not because you may go to a quote-unquote Christian church, but are you truly a member of the family of God? A son, a daughter, a boy or girl in the family of God so that you can rightly be associated with the name of the God 
of the Bible. What a privilege. What a responsibility. What joy to be sons and daughters of God. I urge you today, be sure that you know you are. For only they will inherit as heirs the glory of God. The heaven that awaits us is indescribable. We can't wait, but we will. But you must be in his family. Let's pray.